It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tantidra. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all areas. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Show, recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and your favourite podcasting app. You can also follow us with the Twitter hashtag at bzetechshow. My name's Michael Steindl and today I'm joined by my co-host Kay Wenigal. How are you, Kay? Good, thank you, Mike. How are you? Excellent, thank you. Today we're talking about the state of play in the coal industry in Australia. Australia is increasing its coal exports as much and as quickly as it can and with the help of the federal government. We're looking at why and how this is occurring with Adam Lucas, who is a lecturer in the Science and Technology Studies Program at the School of Humanities and Social Inquiry at the University of Wollongong. And he's also completing a Master of Science and Society, or completed a Master of Science and Society in 1994, a Master of Arts um, in 97, and a Doctorate of History and Philosophy of Science. Adam has worked as a policy analyst as well in the New South Wales government, primarily in the Cabinet Office of former New South Wales Premier Bob Carr. Hi, Adam. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. Hi, Kay. Excellent. Hi, Adam. Adam, your current research is concerned with developing an understanding of how Australia can make a rapid transition from primarily fossil fuel-dependent society and economy to one relying solely on renewable energy for electricity and transport. Can you start us off by telling us what the size and revenue of Australia's coal export market is? Sure. Um, Now, I don't have really current figures on this because it's actually quite difficult to get them now. There used to be a company called Coal Services Limited, which was run by Queensland and New South Wales governments. They were obliged initially to provide annual reports. Uh, They've basically privatised that service now. So they're... (laughs) <laughs> they seem to be releasing less and less information. So, you I really, why. yeah, well, exactly. Uh, you really have to go to the ABS to get a lot of these stats. Now, I think New South Wales Minerals Council um, publishes some of it. But just to give you a bit of an overview, over the five-year period up to 2011-2012, uh, the industry was generating about just over 200 billion in export revenue. In the previous five-year period, uh, it was less than. Uh, less than a third of that quantity. So what we're looking at in terms of the mining industry generally and the coal mining industry in particular was that there was a historic peak in the revenue generated by the mining industry overall uh, in 2010-2011 and for the coal mining industry in particular. So in terms of GDP, uh, the most that the coal mining industry has ever generated in more than 110 years of federal history has been about 4% of GDP. Mining industry, about 10%, just under 10% of GDP. But in terms of their political clout and their ability to um, raise um, (coughs) subsidies, revenues from the federal and state governments, they uh, uh, disproportionately uh, get support from both state and federal governments by both major parties. And, Adam, can you explain to us the different types of coals that Australia exports? Yeah, there's basically two kinds. Uh, it's black coal that we're exporting primarily. 
metallurgical coal, uh, which is obviously used for steel making, and thermal coal, which is used in coal-fired power stations. Um, Australia has dominated the coal export market uh, since the mid-1980s, up until about two years ago, when Indonesia uh, has just temporarily uh, overtaken us, but that is going to... Indonesia's ability to do that can't be sustained, so within two to three years, Australia will once again dominate. Um, and primarily uh, the black and the metallurgical coal are the exports? The yeah, thermal coal and metallurgical coal. Thermal the bla- coal. Black coal, because black, it's yep. um, the quality of coal that's economically recoverable in Australia, black coal, is uh, got a high energy content uh, and a relatively low uh, carbon content compared to, to coal in other places. Well, that's what the um, federal government argument argues, doesn't it, that... It's yeah. the best coal it's, you can. Yes, we have a moral right. duty to give them our good coal. Uh, yes, our, our, <laughs> our coal right. burns cleaner. Therefore, we should be selling it because otherwise uh, emissions will be higher than they would otherwise be. <laughs> so on that score, uh, would you class brown coal as a fourth sort of coal? It's a thermal coal, but we don't bother exporting it? No, that's right, because the, the energy uh, value is much lower and also the amount of carbon dioxide that it generates is much higher. So um, the Australian black coal industries predicted to peak in the 2040s or later yeah. based on the current production levels. Yeah. However, the world coal production is likely to peak between the mid-220s and 230s, yeah. and that indicates that there's a transition to low and zero carbon sources for electricity, heating and steel production in those countries that are dependent on coal, yeah. and, that is be- and that is becoming an increasingly high priority for them. Yeah. What does that mean for Australia, given that there's this disparity? Well... <laughs> It seems that the strategy, and this is an unspoken strategy from both the coal industry and from the Australian governments, is they clearly realise that Australia has got abundant coal resources which are economically recoverable, they're relatively close to coastal infrastructure, uh, and that means that I think there was a perception that the Australian coal industry could fill the gap uh, with whatever... Uh, shortfall there was in East Asia in particular, South Asia, China and India being perceived to be the biggest markets and uh, biggest potential for growth for Australian coal Can I interrupt you there? You say that they're the biggest markets, but I understand that Japan takes about 50% of Australia's exports. Well, that's, export. that's exactly right. And, and I, I have looked at this historically. We started exporting coal to Japan in 1957, I believe, uh, and looking at the period between 1970 and I think I looked up to 2012, 50% of that coal had gone to Japan. Now, that is not the general perception amongst the Australian mm. population and certainly not even amongst Australian politicians. Uh, and you might remember Martin Ferguson when he was Energy Minister and uh, the Rudd and Gillard governments was continually spruiking China as a major export destination for coal. However, if you look at that period, 1970 to 2012, again, uh, about 2% of the coal over that period went to China, which is comparable to how much went to UK or France or the Netherlands. Now, it spiked between 2008 and 2012, but it is, it's declining again already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and likewise with India. I mean, China's uh, imports of coal declined 30%, uh, I think it was 2015, uh, overall, and 20% for thermal coal. 
and they basically uh, put a put a, a cap on imports of foreign coal because they were producing their own. That's right. They 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 massively ramped up production, and they had big stockpiles, and there was an economic slowdown. That's right. Yeah. All of those things. Um, but clearly, also, they have massive pollution problems. I mean, mm. Beijing, as you probably know, um, I think they, they, they banned small coal burners. Mm. There were 100,000 of them just in Beijing, and that mm. made a huge difference to the air quality. So clearly, the Chinese Communist Party realises that th- it's a liability for the Chinese state and for the people if they continue to expand coal production. Um, just recently canned another planned something like 500 coal stations. Yeah, that's right. And if you just look at how much renewables they are uh, installing, 2015, 98 gigawatts of new renewables came online. That's almost twice Australia's total generating capacity. Mm -hmm. I mean, admittedly, that's wind, which has a lower capacity factor, and solar, but still, I mean, in terms of the actual quantity, it's enormous. And uh, around 60 gigawatts just of solar was installed in 2016, which is roughly equivalent to Australia's total generating capacity. So I understand that coal exports nearly double the CO2 emissions for Australia. Uh, is Australia responsible for those emissions from the coal exports? No, it's not. Um, and... All fossil fuel producing nations uh, have managed to uh, negotiate through the Kyoto Protocol and subsequently that uh, it's only the countries that utilise those fossil fuels count those emissions towards their national emissions. But of course there's no guarantee that this is going to continue because there's going to have to be some kind of uh, disincentive given to fossil fuel producing nations to cut back exports. At the moment, there is no disincentive for them to do so. Uh, and I think 2004 was the first time that coal export emissions, attached to Australia's coal exports, exceeded domestic emissions. But consistently, they've exceeded domestic emissions t- since 2010. Yeah, and, and Australia says, well, not our problem. <laughs> no, that's right. And, mm. and, and you know... Uh, they can legitimately argue that on the basis of current um, international mores. But mm. as I said, there's no guarantee that that's going to continue. And and if, as we know, um, Mineshausen and various other climate scientists have told us that 80% of fossil fuel reserves are going to have to stay in the ground if we're going to have any chance of staying below that 2 degrees Celsius threshold, which they've set as a target, uh, and that means that Australia, you know, from a moral perspective, has got a duty not to exploit all of its remaining coal reserves, or gas reserves for that matter. Mm. So just that doubling um, of CO2 emissions, we're, we're emitting something like 1.8% of the global total, not counting that. Yeah. Does it literally go to double that? Or? Yeah, it would be more than double. It would be something right. like 4%. But and that doesn't count emissions from li- liquefied natural gas or from coal seam gas either, uh, or... Mm. Yeah, any forms of gas, for that matter. Or and fugitive emissions from methane, which we discussed on a previous That's right, and, and I imagine, I mean, I haven't done the calculations on that, but if you added that in, you'd be looking at something like 5% of, of global emissions, mm. which, is, you know, and even just comparing Australia's domestic emissions to those of the UK yeah. or France, I mean, they're pretty much on par. They've got three times the population of Australia. Yeah, I'm, I'm fond of saying on this program that we're sort of the richest nation on Earth and also the most polluting on Earth yeah. and, and the 
the most endowed with alternative resources that, that we could use. Exactly. So not only um, are we exporting our emissions overseas, we're also subsidising the fossil fuel industry, and that's both at the state and federal level. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, again, this is very difficult to calculate because, of course, um, expenditures to support the coal industry are dispersed across multiple portfolios at the state government and federal government level. The main ways in which the federal government subsidises the mining industry generally and the coal industry in particular is through the diesel fuel rebate. Now, the industry claims that that is not a subsidy because basically what they're doing is getting back money that is a diesel fuel excise which goes towards uh, the damage done to public roads mm-hmm. by trucking, etc. Mm-hmm. Now, the mining industry says, well, we use most of this diesel off public roads on our own roads and therefore it's legitimate that we get this money back. You know, that's that's a moot point and the Greens have certainly been arguing that they should not be getting this subsidy. It's reasonable that farmers get the subsidy but it is not reasonable that mining companies get it. I agree with them on that. Other subsidies are around uh, provided by the state governments around infrastructure. For example, the creation of coal terminals, coal uh, loading terminals in Newcastle. Uh, aware, everyone's aware of the controversy over the Abbott Point coal terminal mm-hmm. um, and provision of a uh, rail line from the coal mines in Galilee Basin to Abbott Point. That's uh, subsidised by the federal government as well, isn't it? Well, that's right, and they're, they're talking about putting a billion dollars towards that, that railhead. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also subsidies provided in terms of office space for coal mining companies. It's been done in Newcastle by the New South Wales government, for example. And they're, well, and they're, they're subsidies, but then, of course, there are externalities as well, but we can talk about that shortly. There are, there are also, I mean, basically the, the state and federal governments are providing subsidies to the coal industry around the health effects of coal mining, which affect coal communities, coal mining communities, of course the coal mine workers, uh, and, and everybody indirectly through the emissions that they generate. So tell us then about the externalities you just mentioned. Okay, well, there are lots of externalities, and that's a, an economist term, isn't it? That's right. These are costs which the uh, a proponent of whatever the economic activity does not pay for, which are basically um, put onto the public or onto the environment. <laughs> so, very few of these externalities have been monetized or calculated what they're actually worth. But uh, they would include things like draining aquifers, um, destroying arable land with open-cut coal mines, uh, displacing communities through, um, well, uh, the fact that that the prices for rents and for housing go up massively when there's a big coal project. We've seen this happen in Queensland, in various parts of New South Wales, and as soon as the boom's over, prices collapse, people lose lots Mm -hmm. of money. Uh, but when the boom is on, uh, local people are forced out of rental accommodation in particular and forced to move further mm. and further away from the towns where they might have grown up or whatever. So they're, 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 that's one kind. Uh, also, of course, there's environmental pollution from acid rain, from smog, from toxins, from salination of waterways because the coal-fired power stations put salty water into local streams, rivers, yeah. creeks. Uh, of, of course, there's climate change impacts, uh, 
and the health impacts, uh, public health impacts in terms of um, mine workers, coal communities, etc. Now those costs, um, health costs and the climate change impacts have been calculated uh, in various ways. Um, and I used some of the figures that have been calculated by some of the NGOs in that paper that I published in Energy Research and Social Science late last year. And I, uh, from memory, they were approximately $4 billion per annum. So That's a, significant. a significant amount of money, and um, that doesn't and the count the others. Cover in there of, and it was the um, destruction of natural habitats. And That's right, yes, yeah. biodiversity and species mm. loss yeah. as well. Um, so none of those costs have been monetised. And what about rehabilitation of the area? Well, of course, that's extremely controversial. Now, I was just reading, I think yesterday, Western Australia had introduced laws to um, require mining companies to put money into a fund which would provide for rehabilitation in the event that they went belly up and didn't meet their obligations. Now, as far as I know, that is not the case in most of the states. This is a novel thing that's been done in WA, but even so, it's been undermined uh, by the current government. So, generally speaking, if uh, you know, if if these companies either go bankrupt or they on-sell their coal assets to other companies which didn't sign up to these obligations, then basically the public is left with the cost of clean-up. And almost invariably, uh, with with most mining projects over the last 100 years or so, this is what we've seen, is that the public taxpayers have had to pay for clean-up, if it's done at all. Yeah, that's right. But with Hazelwood, um, they did have a figure... Earlier on, they negotiated it with ONGI, Yeah. but then they found out that it was ridiculously low and they had to increase it substantially... And I think the company has agreed to, to pay I, for it. I think, I think from memory, the state government doubled it, but Angie's now saying it's about five times that it's on top of that It's much more than that, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Just back to those subsidies and externalities, mm-hmm. um, I found the example you gave in your paper um, really instructive and enlightening, and correct me straight away if, sure. I, if I interpret it wrongly, but sure. uh, I, I think you said the latest you could get decent figures for was 2005 yeah. six. Yeah. in that you estimated just under $30 billion in revenue, and yeah. that's counting wages, salaries, employees, yeah. super, all that, all, all the things they buy yeah. here. Out of that, um, we get something just under 10 about $9.4 billion in Australia because yeah. a lot of it's foreign-owned, goes yeah. overseas as an estimate. Yeah. Um, on the other side, the subsidies that we're giving to them uh, from government, um, state and federal governments and uh, climate change and health effects externalities, Adds up to about eight point three billion, and that's not counting most of those things yeah. you listed—the habitat destruction, the waterway costs, and all that—leaving about one billion net for Australia. Yeah, probably as a generous estimate. Yeah, um, for all the costs of that, I, I think that's a really enlightening. Well, I th- well, and this kind of highlights, I think, the problems with capitalism. Is mm-hmm. basically the only way many of these industries can make money is if they shift the costs. That if they socialise the costs mm. and privatise the profits. That's what capitalism is all about. And if you look at uh, forest industries, you look at the mining industry, a whole range of different industrial practices, that's how they make profits, yeah. by making the rest of us pay for the damage that they cause to yeah. our societies and to our environments. It certainly uh, became crystal clear in the GFC, didn't it? Yeah. Well, on that point, 
the coal industry is predominantly overseas owned yeah. anyway. That's so right. Not only that, they take the profits out of the country. Exactly. And yeah, they, and it's and my mining company is about eighty three percent foreign owned in Australia. Eighty three percent foreign owned. So is that is it fair to say that's roughly how much of it goes out? That well, in terms of profits, yeah, yeah. that's that's how much is going out. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, there's a reasonable amount of expenditure is remaining in the country, and out of that thirty billion, uh, you know, I, I worked out, yeah, roughly ten billion, about a third is staying in the country. Mm-hmm. But then if you look at all of those externalities, you add them up, then it doesn't look so good for Australia. In fact, if anything, it's probably costing the country uh, in the long term. I can well imagine that with the costs that we've just discussed now and the fact that none of it stays in the country anyway, so... I mean, it- well, 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 wages stay here, obviously, and, there's, and there, there are some other things which, which do contribute to rural and remote communities. I mean, that, that is something that, you know, we do have to concede. But at the same time, I mean, if it's causing all of this damage to those communities as well and to the environments in which they're located, you know, it, it's short-term gain for long-term pain. Mm. Well, well, let's talk about the employment. How many people are employed by the mining industry? Well, this is another thing that's difficult to determine. (laughs) (laughs) I've been trying to find figures for this uh, earlier this year, well, late last year. to try and things thrown around with the Dani that vary enormously, don't they? Oh, well, exactly. Um, Yeah, well, the figures that I could find, that at the peak of the mining boom, coal mining and the mining boom generally, about 63,000 people employed. Now, what I've been able to determine from looking at multiple articles uh, from the Herald, from the Australian, from the Financial Review, from the ABC, was about 20,000 jobs have been lost since the peak of the boom. So we're back down to the levels that they were at between about 2008 and 2012, which is about 30,000 people. And historically, that's pretty much the highest that it's that the employment has been over the last hundred years or so, because I looked at figures going back to 1910, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's fluctuated between about 30,000 and about 15,000 throughout that hundred year period. So again, this period of 2012, 2011, 2012 was by far the most employment, not just in the coal mining industry, but the Australian mining industry in general. And it was about um, <coughs> 200,000 people employed in mining. Uh, throughout Australia at that peak of that boom. And as I said, about 60,000 in, in coal. But generally, the, the peak has been about half of that. So that, percentage-wise, that's a very small percentage when you consider the oh, yeah. size of the workforce in yeah, Australia. Yeah, that's right. It, it's very, very small indeed. It's about, um, well, the, the peak of the mining boom is 2% of the workforce. Okay, so um, one, 1% if you have that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Less than 1% for coal. Mm-hmm. So the coal industry continues to, this is globally, contribute 40% of electrical generation by a fuel source. Yeah. That hasn't changed much. No. 70% of electricity production emissions. Yeah. 30% of global CO2 emissions. Yeah. And less than 20% of um, CHG emissions. Yeah. How does Australia's contributions compare to that? Well, um now, again, I've, I've looked at these stats just very recently. Well, according to the Federal Office of the Chief Economist, 
currently Australia is generating about 65% of its electricity from coal. So Compared to 40% globally, yep. Yeah, and that's down about 10%. It was about 75% uh, only four or five years ago. Now, I think the highest that coal has ever generated for Australia has been about 84%. So it's gone down quite a lot during that time, and that's partially was driven by Labor's clean energy plan, uh, but it was also partially driven by South Australia's embrace of wind power and by Australian households and uh, businesses' embrace of energy efficiency and solar photovoltaic. We've got the highest penetration of uh, solar PV per capita in the world now. Um, so even though we've seen federal and state governments well, particularly under the Conservatives, uh, rolling back policies which would encourage renewables. Certainly Australian households and businesses have been embracing it enthusiastically. Mm. Yeah, very impressive. And possibly because the federal government isn't taking the initiative people want it to. Yeah, well, well, I think it's partially that. But I think, you know, if I live uh, on the south coast of New South Wales, around the Illawarra, and uh, was living a little bit further south from that. Uh, only a little while ago, and uh, one of my close friends was being a delivery driver for Woolworths. And he was actually, I got him to do a bit of a poll, asking people who had solar on their roofs why they were doing it. And primarily they were doing it because of cost, not because they were concerned about climate change. And the fact is, our electricity prices throughout Australia have gone up 110% in the last 10 years. So that's clearly affecting a lot of uh, lower-income families, uh, families that have a lot of children, and they are putting in solar. Mm. And it was demonstrated that the renewable sector didn't contribute very largely to that increase in cost. I think it was something like 7%. Or yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, nationally, that if you look at the figures, that's right. And, and even with the carbon price, uh, I think the... Queensland Uni and Australian Treasury worked out between 9 and 10% increase in electricity costs. But, of course, that was offset by family tax benefits through Labor, you know, uh, to giving more money back to, to, to families uh, through, mm, the ta- through tax. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Science, Technology and Solutions show, and we're talking with Dr Adam Lucas from the Austra- about the Australian coal industry and issues for Australia. Adam, can you go through the main causes for delays and inaction in climate change policies and action as you see it? Sure. Well, there are a number of them. One, I think, and this this is a significant one, is that there's a perception, not just amongst politicians, but un, uh, amongst the general public in Australia, that the mining industry and coal mining in particular contribute far more to the economy than is actually the case. The Australia Institute did a survey of about 1,400 people a few years ago and found that the public thinks that energy and mining contributes about 35% to GDP. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the, the real figure is one-third of that. Um, they also think that my, the mining industry is half Australian-owned, and as I mentioned before, more than 80% is foreign-owned. They also thought that the number of people employed in the industry is far greater than it actually is. Now, given that politicians come from the general populace and they probably have a similar level of education to the general populace, 
uh, I think that it's reasonable to conclude that they have a similar perception. And that's reinforced by the fact, you, you might remember Guy Pearce, who was the, the staff of uh, Senator Robert Hill when he was Environment Minister under Howard, that Guy came out with an expose about the Greenhouse Mafia and and what was going on there. And, and he pointed out, and I, I certainly remember this, when Brendan Nelson was Leader of the Opposition, when was this? This was just after Rudd became Prime Minister, mm-hmm. that he cited similar figures, that, you know, 35% of GDP comes from the mining and, and energy resources sector. And he was supposed to be somebody who had a good grasp of economics and statistics. Well, if he did, either he was speaking with a forked tongue or he was misinformed. And it seems like Donald Trump's taken up that sort of mantra, just whatever you say must be the truth. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, and, and you know, and as we know, if these, uh, what should we call them, misstatements get repeated <laughs> frequently enough, then they become accepted. So do you see that as the main reason the Australian government's continuing to support the expansion of the fossil fuel industry? Well, it, it's one reason, and... and um, We've talked a little bit about this earlier, that I've been documenting the the number of senior politicians, uh, political staffers and senior bureaucrats who are now working for the fossil fuel industry. Yes, we were going to ask you about that. Well, I found 110 of them. 110? 110. Over what period of time? uh, The last 10 years or so. So I was looking at at an article from Crikey, from 2004, where they were documenting 100 Labor staffers uh, during the Hawke and Keating era and what had happened to them. Out of that list, I went through every one of them from 2004, and I found, I think, 8 or 10 of them, so it was about 10%. But uh, we've got 110 now. So Mm. clearly, I think what's happened is the fossil fuel industry realises how much pressure it's under and has been actively recruiting Mm -hmm. these people from government to work for them, or they've been getting people who already work for them to go into the public sector or to work for politicians and help to shape public so it's policy. it's a two-way movement. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, and it's pretty much bipartisan. I found 40 government ministers who are now working for them, and the rest were a mixture of political staffers and senior bureaucrats. But they include people like Martin Ferguson. Mm. Um, it was very obvious. Even Greg Combe. Yeah, Combe. Yeah. Combe and Emerson both working for AGL and Santos as consultants. So that's, that's the coal industry strategy. How has their message changed over the years? Well, it seems that their message has changed somewhat. I mean, initially it was deny that climate change is, is happening. Uh, and use their resources to create confusion and cast doubt. Uh, and we know ExxonMobil has been doing this now since the early 1980s, etc., uh, etc. Et so in terms of what they've been doing more recently, uh, uh, they, clearly the evidence is so um, substantial now and, and pretty much irrefutable that they, now they admit that climate change is happening, mm-hmm. but... They well here in Australia they would say well our coal clean, burns cleaner therefore yep. there is still a demand for coal out there therefore we should be we should be continuing to export our coal from Australia and also that if we don't continue to do that then we're going to be preventing developing countries 
from developing, from mm. providing yes. them with yes. cheap electricity. It's so altruistic. Yeah, yes. a supposedly mm. altruistic argument for continuing expansion of the industry. I mean, someone like Josh Frydenberg has espoused. Yeah, um, that's right. We've heard Abbott saying these things and Turnbull mm. more recently, etc. Mm. So clearly they've had to shift their, their strategy and their rhetoric about this uh, as it's become more and more obvious that there's a need to cut things back. But I'll just say just briefly, because I know we need to wrap up, that there's no easy substitute for metallurgical coal at the moment. Mm -hmm. We use steel in construction across multiple um, countries, um, multiple different areas of construction. Now, there are alternatives to it. Um, Wood laminates, for example, are starting to be used even for high-rise buildings. Clearly, we need to be going down the path of substituting uh, steel in construction because we cannot continue to do this. Something like 90% of steel is already being recycled, so there is a need to do that. However, when it comes to thermal coal, Mm. clearly Australia has got a responsibility to start phasing out production, not expanding production, and that uh, in most countries in the world, renewables are cheaper than new build coal. So there's really no excuse for Australia to continue to go down this path other than it's in a state of denial about the damage that it's causing uh, and, the, and the economic, social and environmental costs that it's going to, to, to wreak on the rest of the planet. Mm-hmm. Just on that um, metallurgical coal, possibly a dumb question, but the coal that's used in the steel production, does all of that end up as CO2 or is it any significant portion of the carbon stainless steel? Well, yeah, I guess I guess a proportion of it stays in the steel, but, but not I, significant amount. It mostly becomes CO two. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I I, I couldn't put a figure on it, mm. but um, but yeah, most of it gets released through the furnaces that are used to produce it. This is an amazing discussion and really really impressive, and we could probably double the amount of time that we've taken so far. Sure. Well, if you want to invite me back at some point in the future, I'll be happy to talk to you again. That's fantastic, and thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Kate. Thanks, thanks for making Michael. the time. You're welcome. Now, Adam, where can our listeners find out more about what we've just discussed and other things, that, research that you've done? Sure. Well, um, I do have a website. Um, I've got a university website. I've also got an academia.edu website uh, where people can download some of this work, uh, including some of the um, some of the talks that I've given in England at Sussex, uh, at Oxford, at and Edinburgh. Uh, academia edu and it's just my name so if you, you adam know, lucas yeah adam lucas academia that's edu. one word full stop yeah i'm not exactly how it works but you <laughs> can find it. it fairly easily mm-hmm. but uh, i'd also recommend that um that listeners who are interested have a look at the sussex university website sussex energy group has been doing a lot of work around energy policy Extremely good. Uh, also, Oxford University uh, has got a stranded assets research program in the Smith School of the Environment, Economy and the Environment, I think it's called. Okay. So, yeah, uh, clearly this issue of stranded assets is going to be coming more and more to the fore as the fossil fuel industry tries to put more and more capital into new infrastructure for exploitation of this resource. It's an important mm. point. It was implicit, but we didn't really get you to talk about the stranded assets facility. Yes, that's mm. right. That's another aspect that we didn't sure. have Sure. Well, well, as I said, happy to talk about that at mm. some point in the future if you'd like. 
Terrific. Thanks, Adam. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on Podcasts. You can find us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. Thanks for listening and we hope to catch up with you again next week.